it's hard when you take a break, um, you kind of lose momentum. And so I, I took a break last time we met two weeks ago and uh, taught through Revelation 21, 1 to 4. Before that, I taught through 1 John 3, 4 and 5, which was part one of a two-part series, or I'm sorry, two-part sermon. And so this is part two. So it's 1 John 3, 4 to 10, but we're going to focus on verses 6 to 10. All right. Um, so let me read that. And then I want to tell you a quick story, and then, um, man, i got to move, so <laughs> let's go, because uh, we're not meeting next week. Next week is uh, volunteer appreciation, so I'm going to go quickly. Um, I may not tell a story. Yes, I am. I'm going to tell First John 3, 4 to 10, John writes, everyone, now this is really important. Listen to these words. This is God's word, but man, this is good, okay? Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared, Jesus, this is verse 5, he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. And let me pause there. What qualifies Jesus to take away sin? What qualifies Jesus to deal definitively with sin? It's the fact that he knew no sin. He was sinless. Amen? That's what allowed him to die in our place. All right, let me keep going. No one who abides in him, Jesus, keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. And that's a heavy verse. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he's been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God, and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. All right, so Lord of the Rings. Now, if you've watched the movies... I've read the books, but it's been a long time. But in the second, every fall, Haley and I, we watch The Lord of the Rings. It's just something fun we do. And so we just finished The Two Towers. And at the end, there's this great battle at Helm's Deep. Helm's Deep is this great fortress, right, built into a mountain. And the people of Rohan, they come there, they, they gather there for shelter. And it's supposedly like this impenetrable fortress, right? But again, the bad guys, if you don't know Lord of the Rings, you're like, what are you talking about, bro? The good guys are in Helm's Deep. The bad guys, they're the Urukai, right? They attack, and it looks like they're winning. They break in, but then the tide turns, right? Help comes. And so Gandalf, you're like, who's Gandalf? He's a wizard. <laughs> I can't assume that everyone knows this story, Lord of the Rings. But there's this scene at the end where the tide turns, and the good guys are winning, okay? The army of men and elves, they have the Urukai on the run. They're fleeing. Uh, some reinforcements are brought in. They're running toward the forest. But then the trees come alive. All right? You're like, wow, this is incredible. So now, you're following me, brother. The trees are attacking the bad guys. The good guys are attacking the bad guys. They have enemies now on both sides. That's a bad place to be, right? If you're fighting a battle and you have your enemy in front of you and behind you, how are you going to fare? Not very good, okay? So the reason I share this story is because of this. Two of our great enemies are mentioned in our passage. Sin, which is our internal enemy. There's a Greek word 
for the sin nature, it's called the sarks, right? The sarks. And it's the sin nature that longs for the things of this world, right? What's the external enemy? Who is the external enemy mentioned in our passage? The devil, right? So we got two enemies. We have an internal enemy and an external enemy. Ah, what do we do? Well, read verse 5. Verse 5 says, You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. Jesus came to deal with our enemy, right? The internal enemy. Now go to verse 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Not only has he dealt with our internal enemy, he came to deal with our external enemy. Christ is the victor. And if you're in Christ, you too have victory. Amen? Over the internal and the external. Praise God. All right. Our focus is going to be on verses 6 to 10. We've read the passage. Let me review. So two weeks ago, no, goodness gracious, three weeks ago, because two weeks ago I was in Revelation 21, 1 to 4. We were in 1 John three weeks ago. Who knows what you ate three weeks ago? Physically. Who knows what you ate spiritually three weeks ago? Let me bring you up to speed. 1 John provides us, shows us, that there are two camps. And I talked about this on Sunday, actually. So there are two kingdoms, right? There's the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. There's those who belong to the Son of God and those who belong to the, the devil, right? Now, what distinguishes the two camps? How you can know that you know whether or not you belong to a certain camp, whether you know that you're a part of God's kingdom or Satan's kingdom, is your attitude toward what? Good. Say it again. Sin. Okay. Now, I love this, and I, I think I mentioned this three weeks ago. I want us to look at, and I shared this with a brother this morning, which is really cool. I want us to look at what John teaches us about the first appearance of Jesus. When Jesus came the first time, what did he come to do? Verse 5. He came to what? Read verse 5. Came to deal with sin. Came to take away sin. Okay. So I want us to look at, in our passage... What Jesus came to do the first time he came, what he promises to do the second time he comes, and then how we should live life between the two, all in relation to sin. Okay, so what we're going to see in 1 John 3, 5 is that Jesus came to take away sin. Everybody said? Amen. Amen. He came to take away, he appeared to take away sin. And if we go back a few more verses to 1 John 3, 2, we read, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But when he appears, we shall be like him. Okay, so when he comes back, we're going to be morally perfect, meaning we'll have no more sin nature. So he came to deal with sin, take it away. When he comes back, what? We'll have no more sin nature. But what about in between? What about life in between? The first and second coming. Verse 3. Of 1 John. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Now, let me summarize this. Christ came to take away sin. He will return to make us sinless. Okay? Even now, between the first and second coming, he works in us by the Spirit to make us sinless. All right, let me say it one more time. Christ came. The first time to take away sin. 
He'll return to make his church sinless. But even now, between the first and second coming, he works in us by the Spirit to make us sin, say it with me, less, less. So, everything that Jesus does for and in his church is opposed to what? It's opposed to sin. How then can God's church, God's people practice sin? If he came to take it away, if he's coming to remove it completely from us, and if even now he's committed to working in us so that we do it less, what should our attitude towards sin be? We should what? We should hate it. We should hate it. And now we come to verse 6. And we've got to be careful with verse 6, okay? I think verse 6 may be one of the most alarming verses in the entire Bible. I mean that. Verse 6 says, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Well, shoot. I sinned today. I sinned yesterday. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Let's just go home, guys, in despair. No, let's not, because we need to unpack this together, what this means. All right? So let me explain. If this verse is not understood correctly, this verse, I think, could discourage many believers and even cause some to doubt their salvation. So what does John mean here? Can anyone say, I don't sin anymore? Can anyone say that? Or it's been years since my last sin. I haven't sinned in years. Our weekly gatherings on Sunday are not like AA meetings. I've been to AA meetings, not because I've ever been alcoholic, because I've been involved in that type of ministry, not AA ministry. Let me explain, God, what are you talking about? So for three years, I was in Boston, and I was uh, kind of like a chaplain at the drug rehab center called the Boston Rescue Mission. So I'm doing, I'm preaching every week there, I'm discipling men, and yes, from time to time, I would go to these AA meetings, and I hated them because the one I went to was just worldly. But if you've been to an AA meeting, they'll often stand up and say, it's been two years or two months since my last drink. None of us can say, hey, it's been two years since my last sin. Of course not, right? That would not be consistent with what we've seen already in 1 John. So 1 John 1.8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So if I say I have no sin, what? I'm lying. And then verse 10, if we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar, God, and his word is not in us. So what's being said here in verse 6 of 1 John 3? Let me help you out. The present tense is used. So verse 6, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. And I think the ESV translates that right. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. So when the present tense is used in Greek, what kind of action does it denote? Ongoing or continuous, okay? I'm going to come back to that. But remember, in Christ, we experience a transfer in citizenship due to the appointment of our new king. And if you're a Christian, who's your king? Jesus Christ. That's Colossians 1. 13 and 14, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Okay, John is saying those who continue in sin, who continue to live with sin as their master and love it, 
who continue to live to please the flesh, clearly do not belong to Jesus. Now, if you're a Christian, your attitude towards sin has changed. You hate it. You don't continue in it unrepentantly, right? Meaning, oh man, I just can't wake up to sin. I can't wait to live for the flesh. I can't wait to follow the evil one. No, we've died to that. Sin is no longer our master, amen? If you're a Christian, are you still going to sin? Yeah, this side of glory. But can you sin less? Can you practice righteousness? Can you obey? Can you follow Jesus? And by the way, who took our sin in our place? Christ did. And we'll get to that as well, because that's the good news. All right, so those who follow Jesus understand the seriousness of sin and thus take sin seriously. They fight it, they oppose it, and they refuse to walk in it. Now, I've met with a lot of men over the years, right, who are battling sin. But I can tell a Christian between a non-Christian because a Christian hates their sin. They don't want to live in it anymore. They'll take extreme measures to get rid of it. They're seeking accountability. They're, they're memorizing scripture. They're meeting with a fellow brother. They hate it. And by God's grace and the power of the Spirit, over time, they will sin less. They will. Now, remember what we learned recently. Not recently, it's just relative. Three or four weeks ago. Because of the new birth, we can abide in Christ and we can practice righteousness. If you're a Christian, you have a new nature with new desires and new power to live differently. Amen? This quote by Daniel Aiken is really helpful for understanding verse 6. He says, Because I now abide in Christ and in the power of his person and in the power of his work in the gospel, I may fall into sin, he says, but I will not walk in sin. I may fall in it, I'm not going to walk in it. Sin will not be my habit. That's what John's. If sin is your habit, if you enjoy it, if you're living for it, if you're walking in it, chances are, I wouldn't say chances are, you're, you're not a Christian. If you love your sin, right? If you love it, how do we feel about sin, Christians? We hate it. We hate it. He goes on to say, sin will not be my habit. It will not be my normal practice. I no longer love sin. I hate sin. I no longer delight in sin. I despise sin. Does this describe you? Does this describe you? If not, then you should not have confidence when our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ appears. Now, what am I not saying? I'm not saying if you sin today, you shouldn't have confidence. I'm saying if you don't hate your sin and you're walking in it and sin is your habit, you love it, then you should have no confidence in Christ. Amen? And when you say amen, you're just saying, I agree. It's true. All right, let's take some time to look more closely at the God-given solution to the problem of sin. And then I want to look at the evidence of the application and the reception of the solution. Okay, so verses 7 to 10. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning, right? Sin is your habit, you love it, you live for it, is of the devil. The devil has been sinning for how long? From the beginning. The reason, now this is so good, right? Verse 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For, here's, here's why. 
for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God, and who are the children of the devil. I'm going to stop there. So, so far, again, three weeks ago, we focused on the problem. What is the problem? Sin. Good. You guys remember that. Hey, the problem is sin. And even if you weren't here, you can obviously the problem is sin, right? Now, before we can look at the evidence for the solution, we need to first make sure that we understand the solution. What is the solution to the problem? The problem is sin. What is the solution according to our passage? All right, so that's point number one, the solution. In verse five and verse eight, we have the solution, right? I would argue that these are some of the most important verses in the New Testament. They answer the most important question, why did Jesus come? Why did he come? Now, this is a great time, by the way. Like, raise your hand if you have unsafe family. Okay? So likely you're going to be with some of those family over Christmas. Christmas is about what? The, the birth of Jesus. And I think the obvious question might be, why did Jesus come? Oh, hey, can I? Can I take you to 1 John 3, verse 5 and verse 8? Because <laughs> it tells us why he came, right? Why did Jesus come? What was the purpose of his coming? It's imperative that we know the answer. Verse 5, you know that he appeared in order to take away what? Sins. And in him there is no sin. So Jesus took sin away by taking it upon himself. The solution is sacrificial in nature. And this amounts to the shock and the awe that is inherent to the gospel, and that in it we learn that the Savior came to do what? He came to do what? He came to die. And that's so counterintuitive, right? I mean, we think of the Savior coming with the sword, slashing the enemies to pieces, but the Savior, in fact, came to, to die. So even at Christmas, I remind my boys, and now my little Sammy Jane, now guys, because we're doing an Advent uh, family devotion right now, I keep reminding him why Jesus came. He was born a baby, right? We talk about the virgin birth. But we need to point him to what? The cross. That little baby came to grow up into a man, live a perfect life, and ultimately to, to die. Because for him to take away sin, he had to die for sin in our place. And then we have verse 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of who? The devil. Of the devil. And what are the works of the devil? Now, we can look more broadly here. Let's go to John 8, 44. Jesus says, he's talking to some of the religious leaders, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Death and deception. You're taking notes. Death and deception are the goals of the evil one, okay? Death and deception. He seeks to cause death, eternal separation through deception, right? He's the father of lies, right? Think back to Genesis 3, 4, and 5. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Now hold on, because what did God tell Adam and Eve? If you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. And what is Satan doing? He's saying, no, you're not going to die, which is what? It's a lie. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God. Actually, it'll be good for you, Adam and Eve. You'll be just, you know what? You'll be God. You won't need God anymore. What deception? 
Again, the goal was to see God's image bearers, Adam and Eve, destroyed and cast away from the presence of God. The devil wants to prevent fellowship, union, community between God and humanity. 1 Peter 5.8, this is a good one to know. Peter says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, he prowls around like a what? A worm? No, man, like a lion, a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Colossians 2, 13 to 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Christ. Now, I know that's a lot, but let me explain. What does Satan mean? The word Satan, Satan? Good. Accuser. It means accuser, right? The devil seeks to accuse us of sin, our shortcomings. He wants to throw that in our face. The devil works primarily through sin. That is his means of getting our attention off of who? Off of Jesus and Jesus' finished work. The devil seeks to entice people to sin. He knows that humanity is enslaved to sin, and therefore he takes advantage of humanity's depraved state. So I put this in your notes. It's a summary of the devil, right? The devil seeks to separate, accuse, and destroy. That's our enemy. But is there good news? What does verse 8 say? He came. Jesus came. He appeared. He came to destroy the works of who? That's like one of those. <laughs> he came to do it. Let's talk about the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The cross and resurrection of Christ have utterly destroyed these works. The works of who? The works of Satan. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, sinners can be brought near to God. What does Satan want to do? He wants to keep us separate from God. Because of the cross and resurrection, sinners like you and me can now be brought near to who? To God. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, and our trust in Jesus, the evil one no longer has grounds to accuse us. Why? I love football, soccer. Right? I grew up playing soccer. And if you've watched soccer at the highest level, when two teams play, typically the two best players will exchange jerseys. right? And they do that to kind of honor, even though they want to kill that team, they want to win. But when the game's over and the dust has settled, you'll see these two players oftentimes take off their jerseys and exchange them. And it's how they honor the other team and the player. Before Christ, what did our jerseys say? Sinner. What's Jesus' jersey say? Righteous. And when you trust in him, he exchanges jerseys with you. He takes our jersey that says sinner, and we get his jersey that says what? Righteous. And now when the Father sees us, what does he see? The righteousness of Christ. Now when Satan tries to accuse us, <laughs> hey, <laughs> I got the righteousness of Christ, right? The Father, go ahead, yeah. Even I was kind of talking about this Yeah. When God looks on us right now while we're still alive. Yes. 
Does he see our sin or does he see Christ? He sees Christ. A hundred percent. That's why Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. Right? And I think of also in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the what? The righteousness of Christ. And I think the best example, guys, and I'm going to read the whole thing. That's a great question. Is Everybody turn to Romans 5.1. So before Christ, we're at enmity with God, but in Christ we have peace. Therefore, Paul writes, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Before Christ, what? Division, disharmony, but now in Christ we have peace. But the key phrase is what? Through our Lord Jesus Christ, or in Christ. So when we've been joined to Christ, the Father now sees Christ's righteousness applied to us. It's much like when David beat Goliath, right? It wasn't just David's victory. That victory was now applied to who? All of Israel, right? He represented Israel when he fought. But now that victory is applied to who? All of God's people. When Christ won, his righteousness is applied to all those who trust in him. We're now covered in his righteousness. And that's what the Father sees. Amen? And that's hard to fathom because, it's, again, we still sin. And that's why Luther called us simul justus et peccator, which means simultaneously justified and sinner. We're still sinners, but how does the Father see us? It's righteous because we're in Christ. It's like your bank account. I mean, if you have zero dollars, that's a bummer, right? I mean, you owe money. we got to pay bills every week. But when you trust in Christ... His righteousness now fills your account. It's been imputed into your account. And now the father sees, oh, he's got the righteousness of my son in his account. Isn't that good? I got one more, more follow-up. Yeah, please, please. When we sin, can we not grieve the Holy Spirit? Yes. Yeah. I think the best illustration is this. If I sin against my wife, right? I'm not a perfect husband. I love my wife. I would fight dragons for Haley, but I'm not a perfect husband. If I sin against her, does that mean that tomorrow I need to get remarried? No. Has that affected our union? No, we're still married. But has it potentially affected our communion? Yes. So that needs to be dealt with, which means we need to confess that sin. We need to confess it and then turn from it. It doesn't, we're still adopted. We're still his children, but we've offended our king. You know, it's like in 1 Peter 3, you know, he warns that the husband who is not gentle toward his wife, the father will not even listen to his prayers. Now, you're still God's kid, but it's going to hinder your communion with him, right? Does that make sense? Okay. So our union is not affected, but our communion can be. And so if our communion is affected, what should we do? We, we confess. We repent. That's right. Amen. We got 14 minutes. Can we do it? Probably not. But these have been great questions and great comments. So thank you all.
Um, let's keep going. The last thing here. So again, we talked about the two enemies, right, that Jesus came to deal with. He came to deal with sin, came to take it away. Remember what John says in John 1.29, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so again, John is reminding us in verse 5 of our text that Jesus came. He appeared to take away sin. But then also in verse 8, he came to destroy the works of the devil. So again, because of Jesus' death and resurrection, sinners can now be brought near to God. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection and our trust in him, the evil one no longer has grounds to accuse us. Amen? And the third thing I want to mention is this. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection and our trust in him, we are now alive. We no longer fear death because in Christ we have the hope and the promise of eternal life. The language of verse 8 takes us all the way back to Genesis 3.15, what scholars have for centuries called the Proto-Evangelium, which in Latin means the first gospel, the first announcement of the good news. What is Genesis 3.15? Well, Genesis 3 is the fall. Adam and Eve sinned against God. And there's consequences. They're evicted from the garden, but before they're kicked out, we remember that God provides them with garments, clothed, which is really significant. I'm not going to go into that. But he makes them a promise. He says the seed of Eve is going to what? Crush the head of who? The serpent, right? But of course, what's going to happen to the seed? It's going to be struck. So it's a picture of victory through death. But the evil one is going to be destroyed. His works are going to be destroyed. When did that happen? Through the cross and the empty tomb. Christ is the seed who came to destroy the evil one for the glory of God. Now, how is the solution applied? How is it applied? Recall Jesus' words to his disciples in Mark 10, 25 to 27. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man, it's impossible. Man can't save himself. But not with God, for all things are possible with God. Who provided the solution? Who applies the solution? God. So again, how is the solution applied? That's verse 9. And then maybe we'll have time to get to the evidence. If not, hey, there's always next time, right? Okay. You guys are very gracious. Thank you. So he says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Okay, so what's the relationship there? Those who no longer make a practice of sinning have been what? They've been born of God. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. So, for the solution to be applied, we must be born of God. Now, I have talked about the new birth in great length. Okay, If you've been here on Sundays, I've talked about it in John 3, Jesus and Nicodemus. The new birth is applied to those who are dead, spiritually, right? Apart from the new birth, we practice what? What do we love? What's our nature? We're sinners by nature, right? Because we're enslaved to sin, because we're spiritually dead. And what do the spiritually dead do? They practice sin. They seek to live lives independently of God. And this helps us to understand that salvation is by grace alone. 
And that's why I've made the argument that regeneration must precede repentance and faith. R.C. Sproul's helpful here. He gives two scenarios. He talks about the man who falls overboard and he can't swim and he's thrashing and his head goes underwater, but then it pops back up and he's spitting out water. He's desperate. He's dying, right? He's drowning. But then someone throws him a life preserver, grabs it with that last ounce of strength and he's pulled out of the water. What we call that? It's a rescue. It's not the picture of salvation that we have in Scripture. The picture of salvation is this. That man is at the bottom of the ocean floor, dead. His heart stopped beating. Christ draws him out, breathes life into him, and he's made alive. The new birth is not 99% God and 1% us, but rather 100% who? It's God. God's saving solution is accomplished for and applied to those who are spiritually dead. The Holy Spirit applies the solution of Christ's sacrificial death and victorious resurrection to lost sinners through the preaching of the of the what? How does God bring life in the Old Testament? Think of Ezekiel 37, the valley of dry bones, but think even before that to Genesis 1. God speaks, and then what happens? There's life. In order for the spiritually dead to be made alive, God's gospel word must speak into them, and the Spirit uses that life to give what? That word to give what? To give life to the spiritually dead. Now, who or what grounds the believer's transformation? What is the basis for our transformation as believers? Verse 9 no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Why? Now, I've mentioned this. The gospel does two things. It provides forgiveness and good transformation, right? Verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, which means what? Because of the gospel and its application to our lives by the Spirit, we now view sin differently. We hate it. We're opposed to it. It's no longer our habit, Right? Something's happened inside. We can now approach sin differently. We don't don't have to live in it. We're not enslaved to it anymore. Why? Verse 9, for God's seed abides in him. Okay, now, who or what does God's seed refer to? Context is always helpful here. Let me finish with this. We've got seven minutes. We might finish, actually. In 1 John 2.25, John entreats the church to let the word abide in them, right? Let the word abide in you, the gospel word, God's word. But then in 1 John 2, 27, we see that the Holy Spirit abides in God's church. So we're to let the word abide in us and the spirit abides in us. Therefore, the abiding of God's seed must somehow be related to the abiding work of the gospel word and the spirit. Now, the Greek word, translated as seed here is sperma. We get the word sperm, and it can refer to the male seed used to fertilize the egg, right? It is that which is used to bring about what? Life, okay? But it can also refer to sperma, nature, someone's nature or their character, and thus the new nature or our new character that is brought about through the new birth. So the new birth is described in Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. And as a result, what does God promise? I'm going to give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. 
I'm going to remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I'm going to put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my law. So the seed, right? So again, verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Why? Everybody say why. So that you're following me. I know this is a lie. For God's seed abides in him. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Wow, why? Because God's seed abides in him. What is God's seed? The seed refers to the new nature which is produced by the Spirit through the hearing of the gospel in the Spirit-produced response of repentance and faith. The Greek literally reads, His seed, or the seed of Him, and thus acknowledges God as the source of the new nature. And He gives it graciously, right? In sum, the new nature is part and parcel of the new birth. It flows out of the new birth. It is the result of the new birth. If you've been made alive by the Spirit, you have a new what? A new heart, a new nature, new desires, new inclinations, right? How do you feel about sin now, believer? You hate it, and you have the power to do what? To put it to death, right? To turn from it. To sin less. Those who have been born of God. Now, if you don't believe this, and you don't believe the gospel, okay? Because the gospel promises transformation. Those who have been born of God have a new nature that is opposed to sin. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that we have the mind of Christ. Do you believe that? The mind of Christ. That's incredible. If you're in Christ, you have his mind. Internally, you're different. The Spirit moves us to repent and believe in Jesus at the hearing of the gospel. And the Spirit imparts within those who have repented and believed a new nature. John Stott's helpful here. I'm not going to read it in his accent. He's got a beautiful, well, he did, he died. But he's with the Lord now. But a, a brilliant English accent. He writes, The new birth involves the acquisition of a new nature through the implanting within us of the very seed or life-giving power of God. One more time. The new birth involves the acquisition. It means you acquire a new nature through the implanting within us of the very seed or life-giving power of God. Birth of God is a deep, radical, inward transformation. Moreover, the new nature received at the new birth remains. It doesn't go away, amen? So if you're in Christ, you have a new nature. And guess what? That new nature remains. And the last thing he says is so brilliant. It exerts a strong internal pressure towards holiness it exerts a strong internal pressure toward what holiness now in the rest of the passage we have the distinguishing marks which evidence whether or not one has embraced the solution so let's look at the evidence we have two minutes <laughs> by this it is evident who are the children of god and who are the children of the devil Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. All right, so is John saying that we are saved by practicing righteousness? No, we are saved to practice righteousness. Practicing righteousness is the evidence of the 
new birth, right? The new nature. We have new desires, new inclinations toward the things of God. Amen? Even Jesus says what in John 14, 15? If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. It's the evidence that we love our king, right? What do you think these acts of righteousness are? How would you summarize them? Where are they found? In the word, right? It's living a life of obedience to God. Are we saved by our obedience? Say it in Spanish. No, but we are saved to obey. Again, Ezekiel 36, verse 25. I will clean you from all your uncleannesses. I will sprinkle you with clean water. Okay, so there, God promises to provide forgiveness. He's going to clean us up. Amen? But then in verse 26 and 27 is the, I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to put a new spirit. I'm going to put my spirit in you. There's the transformation piece, right? And so the gospel provides forgiveness and transformation, right? Don't forget the last part, the transformation piece. Let me just end with this illustration because I have 30 seconds. I've mentioned this probably three or four times uh, in our study. I've said, who you belong to, you resemble, right? Who do you belong to? I, mean, I, I gave the illustration of my son Clark. At least people used to think he looked like me. I don't know if they, they still think that. He's got red hair, but in the face, if you look at our baby pictures, I mean, he looks exactly like me. Okay, so, but it's not just physically. He acts like me because he spends time with me. He's mine. He's my son, right? He resembles his daddy. When you spend time with the Lord, you're going to look like the Lord. If you go to Galveston or Crystal Beach in June or July or August in Texas in the summer heat, it's going to be evident when you come back that you've been in the sun, right? Your face is going to show it. Is it evident that you've been with the sun, the S-O-N? Is it evident? If you have, it shows. Amen? Because when you spend time with him, you're going to resemble him. It's true. So spend time with him. And how do we do that? We spend time in the Word. We spend time on our knees. And we spend time with God's people. Um, is your life character? I mean, John Stott refers to this passage as the moral test of obedience, right? So take the test. Read these verses and look at your life side by side with 1 John 3, 4 to 10. Is your life characterized by habitual sin? Are you seeking to live life without God? Or are you practicing righteousness as he is righteous? The good news is this. If you've been united to the one who is righteous, you now have the power by the Spirit to live righteous. Let me leave you with that. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the good news of the new birth that you and your grace both plan our salvation you accomplish it and you apply it. And I pray for those of us who have trusted in Jesus that we would rest in his finished work, that we would rest in the cross and empty tomb, and that by the Spirit, Father, may we put to death sin in our lives. May we hate sin more. And by your power, help us to practice acts of righteousness, to look to your word and what your word shows us and how we're to live. May we do it. Not to earn favor, because God, your son did that for us, but rather out of gratitude to say thank you for saving us by living lives of holiness and obedience. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this good news. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.